want to thank uh, Brother Mark, who's not here this morning, for uh, preaching last Sunday while I was away in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Boy, isn't that tough. <laughs> Ephrata, Pennsylvania is such a beautiful town, and I was so blessed to be there at the Moeller, M-O-H-L-E-R, Church of the Brethren, a wonderful congregation of folks. Uh, Jean was with me. Uh, in the past, when she was working, Jean couldn't come with me, so I was pretty much a solo out there. But uh, it was great to be driving out to Lancaster with her and great to be fellowshipping with her in the off time. But it was wonderful to stand before a congregation and to be able to share the gospel as I'm doing with you today and to have fellowship with them and to learn to appreciate and enjoy new people and give hugs. I told them, I do hugs, I don't, I don't hug trees, but I do hugs. And uh, I was wondering how that was going to go. And the first person who came up to me said, I can I have a big hug. <laughs> and that's, that's the only kind I know. <laughs> so by the end of the time up there, but more importantly, many folks had taken the challenge. Uh, the challenge for me and when I preach these days is to think of someone who needs Jesus and then represent, be an ambassador for Christ in their life and pour into their life what Jesus has done for them. And so many people acknowledge that and so many people found a place to visualize somebody who needed Christ in their life and then made the promise that they would step in and the next time the Lord gave them a divine appointment, they'd speak. I give you that same challenge this morning. Because the reality, as my sermon says this morning, one person can make a difference. If you look back over your life, ask yourself, who made a profound influence in my life? Has anybody made an, an influence in your life? You know, we're being influenced all the time from people. People in the news media, people in entertainment, people in literature, in so many places in our life, family, friends, and educators, Who's influenced your life and how have they done that? Was it some kind of a special event? Was it uh, character qualities that they had that influenced you? Can you see, can, now can you think of someone in the Bible? Some name that comes out of the Bible, one of the heroes of the Bible? By the way, that's a, a pretty well absented word in our vocabulary today. Hero, right? You hardly hear about that anymore. We keep pushing this idea of heroes off the page and off the center stage, for some reason, they don't want to see that we have heroes in our life. And there are heroes in the scripture. Is, does one come to your mind, somebody in the Bible, who, who made an influence uh, on you, and something that you wanted to emulate, the courage or whatever, of that person? Here's one. Did you ever think a hero was a man named Ezra? What? No. <laughs> I never even heard of him. Ezra, I want to share why he was a person who made a difference and why you can count on him uh, to think about and meditate on. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the whole book of Ezra in the short time we have. So his name means help. What does your name mean? Have you ever looked it up and looked? My name, Robert Salvatore de Salvio. And the name Salvatore and De Salvio, when linked together, means saved of the Savior. That's what it means in Italian. Your name means something. Ezra was a priest, a scribe, people who wrote things down. He was a great leader. And his whole life was dedicated to serving God and helping others. 
What a laudable, what an honorable goal for a life to serve the Lord and to help others. I think of the Salvation Army, heart to God, hand to man, perfect balance. We need balanced lives. Tradition says Ezra wrote most of First and Second Chronicles, Old Testament books. He wrote the book of Ezra, which we're going to read today. And he wrote the book of Nehemiah and a very famous psalm, the longest psalm, Psalm 119. In writing the book of Ezra, he sent his, his narrative around God and God's promise that the Jews who were in slavery for over 70 years in Babylon would one day be taken out of there. They'd be freed from their exile and their slavery. Ezra not only knew God's word, but here's the trick. Here's the important part. Not only did he, did he know the word, but he believed it. So many people have it up here, but not in here. Do you believe God's word with all your heart? Do you trust it? Do you believe that God's word is true, that you can go through the pages of this book without doubt, without wondering? If You may not understand what you've read. You may have heard somebody comment on it and disagreed with what you heard. This is secondary, that your heart desire is that you believe what you've read and you ask God to help you to understand it. He will help you to do that. In Jeremiah 29, 8 to 14, which you can read on your own, God made six promises to the exiled Jews in Babylon. Here's what they were. And then I've linked them to the promises that Jesus made. For example, God says, uh, I will visit you to these people in exile. I will visit you. John 14, 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And he did when he ascended into heaven. It wasn't long after that when the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost and he indwelled the believers. How close is God to you? He's in here. Amen? God is not only with you, he's in you. That's a hard concept to get our minds around, but that's the reality. And that's what makes your relationship with Jesus so different from religion. Religion is the church is the place you go to rather than the person you are. You are the church. You're the temple of God. He lives in you, and you abide with him. And your actions and your motivations and your desires coming from the Holy Spirit is to please God and to serve God and to share the love of Jesus Christ with the people in your life. You have the greatest thing in the universe to share with people. Why do you keep it to yourself if you do? So I will visit you, God says. So while they were in Babylon, that promise was kept. He would let them and remind them of his presence. Secondly, God says, I will perform my good work for you. In other words, while you're there, while you're under those circumstances, while you're going through those difficulties, you're still going to experience the blessings I have for you in that situation. I've read so many accounts of POWs who were Bible believers and how God blessed them even while they were under those austere, difficult, miserable conditions. They still found ways to feel God in their, in their hearts and rejoice. First, uh, Philippians 1, 6 
The Bible says, being confident of this, confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The promises that God's made in you, the fact that you're saved, you're not going to lose your salvation. He's going to continue to be your Savior, and he's going to continue to love you unconditionally, and he's going to continue to try to lead you and guide you and guard you and direct you as long as you live. And the next promise that he'll keep is that as soon as you step off, and I ain't going to do that literally, but as soon as you step off this life, you're going to step into new reality. You're going to go from things that are temporary to things that are eternal. Thirdly, God says, I have good things towards, good thoughts towards you of peace, not evil. Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Don't be riddled with anxiety. Don't give in to stress. Don't be overwhelmed by your circumstance. There's help. You're not facing this, whatever this is, by yourself. Your friends who are unsaved, your family who are unsaved, the people in your sphere of influence who are unsaved, do not have that help. It is absent from them because they have pushed God away. The moment they pull God in and the moment they confess their sin and repent, the moment they ask Jesus Christ to come into their heart, the Holy Spirit's going to do that. And they're no longer going to be alone either. Now, how would you like to face life? With the Lord or without the Lord? Every person I've ever spoken to who is a Christian, who has gone through miserable, difficult, terrible times, I've always said, but I never would want to experience it without Jesus. I could never have gotten through this without the Lord. Not that you are exempt from it, but that you can go through it. Fourth, I will cause you to return to your own land and place. He did. Fifth, you'll call upon me in prayer and I will hear you. Now, what idol are people worshiping? And what idol, what pagan God, what God who is not real can possibly answer that and say, you pray to me and I'll answer you. But God answers, here's your prayers. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. God's not hiding. He's not hiding. The book of Romans chapter 1 says, if you just turn over a rock, he's there. You can see his creation. You can see his creative hand. God's fingerprints are on everything. His fingerprints are on you, that he made you, that he made this universe. We can see that. The more science discovers about the micro world and the more they discover about the giant universe, the more God is revealed. Amen? Do you know that? Don't be buffaloed by people who tell you there's no evidence for God. There's plenty of evidence for God. The thing that you've got to do is believe it. And it's not so hard to believe. So this morning, I'd like to take you for a fast walk through the book of Ezra, and it will show you how God pattern, partnered with Ezra to keep his promises. So first, let's go to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. It's up here on PowerPoint. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of, of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyprus, Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. Let his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and up to, up to Jerusalem, build the house of the Lord of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourns, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside the freewill offering of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, with the priests and Levites, with them all, whose spirit God had raised, to go up to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. <clears throat> so verse 1 acknowledges that the prophecy of the book of Jeremiah, which was written 70 years previously, all those promises which I just shared with you were coming true. The time had come. You know, Jesus prophesied when he was 33 years old that, uh, that the, the, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. 70 AD came along and the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed just as Jesus said. How could Jesus know that? Because one of the things that Jesus was, was prophet. He was a prophet. And he prophesied because he knew that the temple at Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD. Hasn't been rebuilt. But guess what? The scripture says one day it will be rebuilt. Amen? Verse 3, King Cyrus acknowledges that Jehovah, the God of Israel, is the true and living God. Now you've got to realize, he's surrounded by people who believe in many gods. They are polytheists. They believe in many gods. And he's taking a stand to say that the God of the Jews, this Jehovah God, he is God. Now, we are in a time when there are so many different gods, small g, if you will. We need to stand up and proclaim that our God is God and be unashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, right, Paul? But of the power is for the Jews first and also it's for the Gentiles. I'm not ashamed to proclaim Jesus Christ. You and I should not be ashamed to proclaim Jesus Christ. He is God. When God is acknowledged in the heart of those in leadership, good things can flow from those hearts. If we've got people in Congress who love God, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, they can make a difference by standing up for their convictions. Amen? In your situation, wherever you are, wherever God plants you, with the people in your sphere of influence, the people in your life, you can make a difference by standing up for Christ and sharing the testimony that God's given you. Cyrus is moved by God's spirit to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem, which had been destroyed. He commands the temple to be returned to its formal glory. He releases 5,400 items of silver and gold stolen from the temple when it was attacked. Chapter 2, he releases the first of two groups of Jews going home. 5,000 people. The Bible is such a wonderful book of, of facts and figures. 5,000 people and 8,000 animals. I needed to know that. I guess I did. 
Two men lead the exiles home. Zerubbabel, who is a political leader, and Yeshua, who is a high priest and a spiritual leader. See, they were linked together. No separation of church and state there. Shouldn't be any separation of our lives and our faith. We shouldn't compartmentalize our life and, well, God, you can be in charge of, of my, my church life, but don't go near my financial life. You can be in charge of how I sing my songs of, and hymns of praise, but don't tell me what I need to say when I'm out in the real world. No matter where you go, you are the real world. You are an ambassador in that place of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3. The first thing Yeshua does when he arrives in Jerusalem, he rebuilds the sacred altar of Jerusalem in its prescribed original site, torn down by people who did not believe in, Yeshua, in, in Jehovah. Tore down. So what does he do? The first thing he's going to do before they do anything, he's going to set up an, an altar and worship the Lord there. But, snag number one, non-Jews living there immediately begin to do something you're familiar with. They begin to protest. But the work kept going on. So the protests were going on, and the work was going on, and that's the way it went for a while. Chapter 4 shows us snag number 2. Non-believers began writing, are you ready? Hundreds of letters demanding the work of the temple be stopped. Now this is 3,000 years ago, folks. But they're using the same tactics today, amen? Let's protest, as long as we're peaceful, which means we can burn anything down we want. Hundreds, what, did I say something funny? <laughs> so the work didn't stop. This may sound familiar, because a few years ago, there was a congregation right in Hunterdon County, right in our, in our township, trying to restore a vacant industrial building into their meeting house. They found this wonderful building, and they wanted to turn it into a meeting house. And so they started to prepare for that and go through all the necessary hoops. But the folks on the road that they were doing this on started to launch their protestations to the local planning board. And that slowed the work down and piled on extra costs. But guess what? The work prevailed. And the church now stands as a lighthouse in this community. In Ezra, in the Ezra account, the protestations wrote, the protesters wrote that the regional king, Artaxerxes, saying once these Jews are behind the security of their walled city, they won't pay taxes. Now, you can beg a politician to help you. And you can make phone calls. And you can say letters. And you don't hear from them. But just tell them you're not going to pay taxes. They'll be at the door. I mean, if you want to get their attention, stop paying taxes. See what happens. Well, if you want to get that, you're going to give them a heart attack. Just the threat of taxes will do that. So what did Artaxerxes do? He commanded that the work stopped. No tax, no work. But nobody ever threatened not to pay taxes. This was one of those wonderful rumors. You call it, or somebody calls it, fake news. And that's what it was. Chapter 5, it took 15 years later for two fearless and faithful prophets named Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people to regard, disregard the king's order and start to work again. Be bold, you know, make a difference, stand up. As the work began, a local, we'll call her a busybody, just to make it nice, a local busybody by the name of Tatane, Tatane sends a letter to the new king, Darius, saying, quote, 
I had this feeling that King Darius, uh, that King Cyrus never wrote a decree releasing these Jews and telling them to rebuild the city and the temple. I think this, and because I think it, I'm writing it, and because I'm writing it, you better pay attention. And what I'm thinking is, everything they're doing and everything they're saying is a lie. There's no proof of that. Chapter 6, the royal archives now are searched, and they're searched for the truth. And guess what? In these archives, the truth is revealed, and facts trump, and I don't mean that, facts trump fears every time. Every time the facts come out. Forget your emotions. Forget your feelings. Here's the truth. Here are the facts. You can read them. The documents are found, and they disprove what she said, and the work went forward. And here's a valuable lesson. God uses the opposition of his enemies to serve his purposes. Yeah. Her letter was intended to stop the rebuilding of the temple. Instead, it actually assured that the temple would be completed. Psalm 76.10 says, Surely the work of the wrath of man shall praise thee. Paraphrase, human opposition only enhances God's glory. Chairman Mao of China, the first great dictator, his desire was to crush Christianity. And he did a wide variety of things to do that. I mean, if people professed that they were Christians, the police would come into these meeting houses, homes where they were worshiping, and they would say, if you, do you worship that Jesus? Yes, take him out and shoot him. They would put, sometimes they put on a wall a picture of Jesus, and they'd have people line up in the, in, the, in the meeting house, and one by one, they'd have them walk by that picture, spit in the face, and deny Jesus. If they did that, they lived. If they didn't, they were shot. Well, he had this great idea that he was going to unify all the different languages of China. And he decided that he was going to make all the different languages of China Mandarin, which would become the official language. Well, you know how that helped the gospel? Because Bibles no longer had to be translated into a hundred or however many dialects they are, only need to be translated into Mandarin. So the gospel spread like wildfire. You see, God can use even evil people for his purposes. The temple project was completed 20 years after it began, and now the call went out to the remaining exiles to come home. And we go over to Ezra chapter 7. The older the Bible gets, the harder it is to turn the pages. Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 to 13. Now, this is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, even the scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes of Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of, the, of God of heaven, perfect peace and at such time. I made a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will, to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. Chapter 7 says there were six reasons why Ezra was sent back to Jerusalem. Very practical reasons. First of all, to investigate if the people were obeying God's word. He wanted to know where they were spiritually. He wanted to take a temperature gauge. He wanted to find out if they were hot for Christ, or for, for, for Jehovah, or cold. Secondly, he was given the responsibility of carrying all the gold and silver the king gave as an offering to God for the temple. 
Third, to be sure that the money was spent properly. Washington, listen to this. We're sending somebody up there to check on what's going on up there. I'll be in jail next week. Fourth, to return certain temple articles used in services in the temple. Fifth, to set up magistrates and judges in western provinces where there were none. You know, law and order. And finally, to teach the laws of God to all people, not to a select few, but to everybody. This should be one of the goals of our church and every Bible-believing church. Hey, we are, we are sending this out over to anybody who's willing to turn in and watch. So this can, be, this can be seen anywhere in the world, the gospel being preached. This should be a delight in our hearts. Somebody told me they couldn't make it to church, and they were listening on the radio, on the telephone, I'm sorry. I don't know when that was, but somebody told me that. God had prepared Ezra for this mission. It's a truth that whomever God commissions, he also prepares and empowers. You see, Ezra was ready. He was ready to do what God had commissioned him to do. If you've been called to the Lord, he's got you covered. He will make sure that you have experiences that will help in that calling. Ezra was a student of the word. He was an interpreter and teacher of the word. And when he spoke from the Bible, from the scripture, people's understanding of the word grew. That should be a goal of every pastor. In his teaching, he never changed the scripture, never added to it or subtracted from it. He taught desiring to preserve and keep every word of God. Psalm 119, 89, one of his Ezra's favorite verses. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. You don't change this book. You don't pull words out, leave verses out. You don't change the language. You keep it, and you explain it, and you make sure people understand. God's word is eternal and stands fast without change. Those who change it to do so, at their, they do so at their own peril. Chapter 9, not long after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, what he hears breaks his heart. Many Israelites living there have intermarried with the Canaanites and adopted their religion. Big deal, some would say. Who were the Canaanites and what makes it a big deal? Well, the Canaanites is a general term which included Phoenicians, Philistines, Amorites, Hittites, an awful lot of ites there, Hittites and Hittites. They were the descendants of Noah's son, Ham. Early cities founded by them included Jericho, Sodom, Gomorrah, and Jerusalem. The nations of Canaan were known to be the most sexually perverted, morally depraved, and bloodthirsty people of all ancient history. Bless you. Must be true. What was Ezra's reaction to that? Did he laugh it off? Did he shrug his shoulders? Well, what can you do? What it, what, it is what it is. Whatever. None of those things. Verses, Ezra 9, verses 3 and 4. Ezra 9, 3 and 4. And when I heard this thing, Ezra writes, I tore my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair from my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. He was confounded. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the Lord, of the God of Israel, because of the transgression of those that had 
been carried away, and I was astonished until the evening sacrifice. He grieved, he wept, he laid his face down in the temple, he cried out to God, he tore his clothes, he was praying to God that the nation would repent, that they would turn from their ways, and the nation's direction broke his heart, and then he prayed. And James 5.16 says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And what were the results of that prayer? Now remember, God hates sin more than he hates anything. The Bible uses that phrase, that God hates sin. He loves the sinner. But what was the result of his prayer? Here it is in, Rome, in Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. When Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women, for the people wept very sore. They were repentant of heart. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Israel, Ezra, we have trespassed, we've sinned, we've gone off the deep end against our God. We have taken strange wives, godless women of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God and put away all our wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of the Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter, matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. What were they being asked to do? They were open to the moving of the Holy Spirit, but the solution was very harsh. Conservative scholar Matthew Henry comments on verses 1 to 4, and here's what he says. Shechaniah advises that a speedy and effectual course should be taken for divorcing the strange wives the unbelieving women. The case is plain. What has been done amiss must be undone as far as possible, end quote. Ezra considered this solution while painful in verse 4, the command of God. And verse 4 records, it took courage and grace to divorce wives and children who were loved as dearly as families today. Evidently, the heartaches and suffering confined for, uh, continued for years but the consequences of not repenting would be even harder. What Israel en enemies couldn't achieve, the annihilation of the Jewish race. By, by uh, murder, human love and passion could, could accomplish. The assimilation of Jewish bloodlines into pagan races and in time disappear. One man had the courage to stand up and speak out, and the people listened. One man following God's leading made a difference in the lives of the people around him. One man's prayers change the direction of a nation. Somebody you know needs your prayers. Is there somebody in your life that needs your prayers? If you know somebody who's hopeless, homeless, helpless, if you know somebody who's feeling distressed and filled with anxiety, if you know somebody who's given up hope, that person needs your prayers. Closing story. His nightmares began each day when he woke. James Stegles was 19. He was in Vietnam. Though he carried a small Gideon Bible inside his shirt pocket, he couldn't bring himself to read it. His buddies were cut down around him. Terror was building within him. And God, God seemed far away. His 20th birthday passed, then his 21st. And at last, he felt he just couldn't go on anymore. 
On February 26, 1968, he prayed for it all to end, and his heart told him that he would die before dusk. Sure enough, his base came under attack that day, and Jim heard a rocket coming straight toward him. Three seconds to live, he told himself. Then two. Then a friend shoved him into a grease pit, and he waited for the rocket to explode, but there was only a surreal silence. The fuse malfunctioned. For five hours, James knelt in that pit, and finally his quivering hand reached into his shirt pocket and took out his testament, beginning with Matthew. He continued through the first 18 chapters. When I read Matthew 18, 19 to 20, when I read Matthew 18, 19 to 20, I somehow knew that things would be all right. Long after he returned home, he visited his wife's grandmother, Mrs. Harris. She told him of a night years before when she was awakened in terror. Knowing Jim was in Vietnam, she had sensed that he was in trouble. She began praying for God to spare his life. Unable to kneel because of arthritis, she lay prone on the floor praying and reading her Bible all night. And just before she read Matthew 18, 19 to 20, if two of you agree down here on earth concerning anything, you ask my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered together because they are mine, I am there among them. She immediately called her Sunday school teacher who got out of bed went to Miss Harris' house. Together they claimed the Lord's promise as they prayed for Jim until reassured by God's peace. Having told Jim the story, Mrs. Harris opened her Bible to show him where she had it marked. In the margin were the words, Jim, February 26, 1968. Coincidence? Coincidence? No, a God incident. Who needs your prayer? I know our nation needs our prayers. I know that anybody you pray for, God will answer those prayers one way or another. So please, be the person who makes a difference in the life of somebody. Pray for them. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to read your word, to meditate upon it, to understand its truths, and be made aware of its warnings. So we pray your blessing upon each person today, and help us to be a person who is willing to make a difference in the life of someone else. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name.